Good afternoon and welcome to Bible Quest. I'm Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania. With me is Chase Byers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Hello, Chase. Hey, Jeff. How's it going today? Good to see you. Good. And you have a, a new little girl. A oh, boy. Girl. Girl. Yeah. Very good. You had it right the first time. But yes, we are. We've just been blessed with a beautiful little girl. Uh, five pounds, 11 ounces, 18 and a half inches, and she's doing really, really well. Thanks that, is, that, that is great. That's a great blessing. Um, and she was just born Sunday? Yep, Sunday morning, uh, at 10.55 a.m. Oh, wow. And Joe Works, who uh, his, his little ones are all grown up pretty nearly. Joe yes, Works. they are. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, I'm just kind of uh, taking that you finally got Harrisburg right. Now. Yeah. <laughs> But I can't get it to the gender of the child right. <laughs> we live in an age where a lot of people have that problem. Uh, okay, and Drew DeGrotto is behind the scenes today, and uh, we appreciate his work behind the scenes. So our topic today is, um, I forgot what the title is. What's the wrong, t- motives, wrong motives in Bible study and teaching. Yes, that's the title, Wrong Motives in Bible Study and Teaching, and we're going to look at some motives. Uh, Chase, you actually had uh, an idea about something that we're going to get around to. It's an idea of uh, you are discussing the motive that we sometimes see. Uh, it's really kind of an arrogance um, that we'll get around to here in just a little bit. But before we get to that, there are several motives that, are, that we're going to look at in the Bible associated with wrong teaching. Uh, we're going to look at greed in Second Peter 2. We're going to be, be looking at people who just, they want to be seen of men as teachers. Um, there, and then there's this just love of, of something new, something different. The idea that I know something nobody else knows. And, and we'll get to talking about that a little bit. But one of the passages we're going to go to right away is going to be Second Peter chapter 2. And I think it would be worth our while to spend just a few minutes um, before we get into the meat of our topic today, talking about a word false teacher, because anytime we start talking about teachers of error um, and uh, that sort of thing, then this term uh, gets thrown around. And you guys may not see this exactly as I do, and that's all right. We can talk about it a little bit. But, um, but I think it'd be worth making some observations. Let's look at 2 Peter chapter uh, chapter 2. And I've got to get my Bible open. Um, actually, if we look back at 2 Peter chapter 1, um, Peter is talking about the prophetic word having been made more sure uh, when he was an eyewitness of the majesty of Jesus Christ. He saw the transfiguration and thus, in verse 19 of chapter 1, we have the word of prophecy made more sure. And so then he says in verse 20 and 21, knowing this verse, that no prophecy of Scripture is a private interpretation. No prophecy ever came by the will of man, but men spake from God being moved by the Holy Spirit. So he's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures fulfilled in Christ. And the people who wrote those Old Testament Scriptures weren't just giving their own ideas, their own interpretations. They were being moved by the Holy Spirit to write what they wrote. But then Peter warns in chapter 2, verse 1, there arose false prophets also among the people. So you had the people who were being moved by the Holy Spirit uh, to write the things that they did. But there were other people who were claiming to be prophets of God, and they were not. 
And yeah, Ezekiel, Ezekiel 13, we'll talk about some of those very same people, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Several passages in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 28, uh, Zechariah 13. Zechariah 13 talks about those who had put on the hairy robe in order to deceive. And, um, and the, uh, it's in the Septuagint. It actually calls <clears throat> false prophets there. And so Peter says, look, there were also false prophets, men who, who were uh, bogus prophets, imposters. They were pretending to be prophets of God, attend, int, uh, um, pretending, did I say intending? Pretending to be mouthpieces for God, moved by the Holy Spirit, uh, receiving revelation from God, and they were not. Um, and so then Peter says, there rose false prophets also among the people, as among you also there shall be false teachers who shall privately bring in destructive heresies and so on. I hear that the word false teacher often used of anyone who teaches error. And, and I want to be clear here. I, I don't believe the term false teacher applies to everyone who teaches error, even not even to everyone who teaches just horribly destructive error. Um, but, but let's be clear. I'm not saying that error is, um, uh, not a, a dangerous thing. Error is a dangerous thing. And a man who teaches error needs to be corrected. Uh, he may need to be marked, but that doesn't necessarily make him what Peter is talking about here, because Peter is actually using a word that we don't have any record of existing in ancient Greek prior to this moment. It seems that Peter makes up the word, and he makes it up analogous to false prophet. Well, what was a false prophet? Was a false prophet somebody who was mistaken about something? Would you say Paul was a prophet of God? Uh, sure. Was Paul, was. was Paul ever mistaken? You remember when he said that we're going to have many lives lost, and, and then lo and behold, he got a revelation, and, and the revelation was there would be no lives lost. Right. Uh, so Paul could be mistaken about things. Did that make him a false prophet? No. No, because he wasn't a phony prophet. He wasn't a bogus prophet. He wasn't somebody claiming to speak from God and lying about it. That's what a false prophet was. And Peter uses the term false teacher, which is one word in Greek, not two. And he uses this word as comparable to false prophet. Well, remember, there were teachers a special class of teachers in the New Testament uh, in Acts chapter 13, verse 1. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, among the Paul's discussion of the gifts that the Lord has provided, um, you have in the church apostles, prophets, teachers, and then miracles, and so on. And clearly in that context, it seems teachers are talking about men who spoke by inspiration, like the Old Testament prophets spoke by inspiration. So if I can jump in and ask a yeah. question, Jeff, because this, this is something I'm thinking, and I'm sure there's some other viewers who are thinking this as well. So, yeah. so under your view, yeah. the reason why I find it confusing is because I necessarily want to say anyone who is teaching what isn't truth, what are they teaching? Error. They're teaching what is false. Right. If it's not true, it's false. Yeah. And so they are a false teacher. So what you're And that, doing, that's what my brain is wanting to do. Yeah. And so that's and why you, I'm confused. And what you're doing, you're taking the word false and applying it to the thing taught rather than to the person. But remember, I keep em em emphasizing in Greek, this is one word. It's not two words. It is one word that describes a person. 
And so we think about other cases where the word false is compounded with a noun to create one word, false Christ. Does the word false refer to the person or to the thing the person is saying? Well, obviously he's claiming to be a Christ, so that's something he's saying, but it's not saying that everything he teaches is wrong. Much of it doubtless is, but it's saying he's a phony Christ. Um, and you see that term used in Matthew 24. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul mentions false apostles, does that mean that everything they're saying is false, or does that mean they're not really apostles? Which does it mean? They're not really apostles. They're not really apostles, right. So the term, the word false, when compounded and used to form one new word with, with apostle or brother or Christ or prophet or teacher, is usually in ancient Greek, what it was doing was being used to say, that guy is not really what he claims he is. He's not really a teacher. Uh, he's not really a, a, a guy who's speaking by the Holy Spirit. He's, yeah. he, and in fact, if you look it up in BDAG, some of these, BDAG is going to use the word bogus or imposter uh, for some of these. Yeah, and, and so, I, I understand where you're coming from. And I, I do want to be careful not to just label anybody a false teacher because that is a very, because scripture condemns false teachers and false prophets very, very in a very, very vivid and, and scary way. Uh, but I, I think it does come back to motive. And I know we're going to talk about that in just a second. You take Apollos, for, for instance, somebody who had as much information as he could have at that moment. And was what he was teaching a false thing? Yes. Yeah, it was. But, but well, his it, motive was pure, and you can see that in his actions, in, yeah. in the way that Priscilla and Aquila pull him aside, show him the way of God more accurately. In the next chapter, he's out teaching and preaching, and from what we can tell, goes on to be a very good teacher right. in the Lord's church. And so it does come back to motive. So that I completely agree with you on, and I appreciate you explaining all this to me. Yeah. So I, I wonder if it would be helpful just to kind of note in Second Peter, this, uh, the second chapter, there's just great emphasis on whoever these false teachers are, that their end, the consequences, is destruction for them. He uses that word several times. Uh, he compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels who left their proper domain, uh, things like that, uh, all the way through describing them in the most dire of circumstances before the Lord. They're right. completely lost. Mm -hmm. and, and just to be it, clear... I believe somebody could be teaching error and be completely lost and, and not necessarily be a false teacher in the sense that Peter uses the word. Now, if, if you, when, you, when I say that, if you, you, if you have in mind your, and I don't mean YouTube, but to the audience, if you have in mind your definition of false teacher, that's not going to make any sense to you. But what I'm saying is somebody can be uh, an errorist and he can be leading people astray and he can be himself condemned but he's not necessarily pretending to be uh, a teacher speaking by revelation from God, say, for example. Uh, and, and also, I think by thinking about that idea that destruction is their end so clearly in this chapter, um, you know, I think we could just ask people, raise your hand if you have ever taught anything that is in error, that, that, is, that you've changed your mind on. Yeah, I mean, all of it, if we've taught very much at all, you, you've taught something that later on you realize, oh, that wasn't correct. And so you tried to, to fix it. Well, during that time that you taught that in error, uh, were you 
in destruction? Were, were, were you bringing upon yourself a swift destruction? It might depend on what it is. Uh, that may or may not be the case. But if it is automatically the case, then that would demand perfection on the part of any teacher. So either you're a false teacher, you're a true teacher in absolutely everything, or you're a false teacher. That just doesn't work. None of us are going to be perfect. The way this book ends, 2 Peter 3 and verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Um, you know, thankfully, we have that mercy that we don't have to have everything right. Now, we're trying, and we ought to try. But when we make a mistake in our teaching, that doesn't make us a false teacher. Right. Okay. All right. So that's kind of the upshot of what we've said so far. It can, it can still put us in a bad situation. It can still uh, put those we teach in jeopardy of condemnation. It can put ourselves in jeopardy of condemnation. But, but uh, the term false teacher has a special meaning, and, and we want to be careful and not just throw it around for anybody who's teaching error. But now let's get to our discussion of motives in Bible study, wrong motives in Bible study and teaching. And these false teachers certainly, here in Second Peter 2, that Peter describes, they certainly had some wrong motives. And so let's start in. What, what motives do we immediately encounter in Second Peter chapter 2? Well, they're secretly introducing these destructive heresies. Heresies. How do you say, guys, I never say that word right. How do you actually say that? Um, error. <laughs> error. Yeah. Errors. Well, Her- heresies. So, heresies. But put, put, the, um, put the emphasis on the word secretly there. Why are you doing something in secret? Mm. Normally because you know that it shouldn't be done. Okay. <laughs> and so All right. already, I think, something right off the bat sketchy. About That's that. a red flag. That's a red flag. Um, verse two, many shall follow their lascivious doings. Uh, the fact that they are lascivious, um, speaks of a lack of, of the word hubris is really associated with lascivious, but as you come down in the context, it seems that there's maybe even, um, some sexual connotation here. They're, 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 they're encouraging people to live in a wanton way. And that speaks to their, to their character, but also to their motive. And then verse three, in covetousness, shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you? Uh, how does, how does your translation read there, Chase or Joe? By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. Greed is what the numeric. Greed. Yeah, sure. So, here are people, you know, Paul talked about in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and I believe it's about verse 3, uh, people would heap to themselves teachers after their own lusts. Um, a, a teacher who is just interested in, he's not interested in, in truth. He's not interested in making sure people learn the truth. He's interested in pleasing the people. Often his motivation is he wants to get something from the people. So he's going to tell the people what they want to hear. And here in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 3, Peter's talking about people who will feign words. They will, they will say things they don't even mean. They don't even believe. But they will say them because they know it's what the people want to hear. And that's the way they can take advantage of the people and get money from the people, get things from the people, get status from the people, whatever. 
So they are their motive here: greed. Ju- so, jumps out. Jeff, could you read? Could you read the begin uh, verse three again for, uh, out of your translation? And in covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. So, making merchandise of you, mm-hmm. really, like the people have become the product. The people are just a means to enriching themselves. Yeah. yeah. And I would imagine the Greek word, if you're reading from the ASV, is actually our Greek word for, for merchandise, like something being purchased. I could be wrong about that. The New American Standard, I think, tries to make more sense of it by putting in exploit. But I'm shooting from the hip here. But I, I would imagine Jeff's translation is a little more true to the text. But yeah, that is quite amazing. I had not realized the ASV putting it in that in that vernacular. That's pretty uh-huh. cool. Uh-huh. All right, well, let's come on down in the text. We don't need to spend all day in this text, but we do see quite a bit said about these people. Um, we, we get into the latter part of verse 3 and then coming on down through verse 9. And the point of those passages is these people are going to be condemned. And uh, Peter goes back to how God dealt with Sodom and Gomorrah. And he goes back and he talks about how um, God dealt with angels who sinned. And his point is just like God condemned those, God is condemning these false teachers here that Peter is describing. And then it describes them in verse 10, a little bit more about their, their character. Uh, What do you see about their character in verse 10? Well, there are those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Mm-hmm. So rebellious, rebellious. daring, yeah. uh, self-willed. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not trembling when they revile uh, angelic majesties. So they are just, I think in one word, rebellious men. They, they, they Again, the word hubris comes to mind. They have the arrogance to ignore uh, a power above them, the power of God, um, and they're going to exalt themselves. And then we come back to uh, verse 13, we come back to the idea of greed. Uh, Read verse 13. Hey, Jeff, before on, do you have more in verse 10 describing them? Yep. Daring, self-willed, they tremble not to rail at dignities. And then there's a contrast with angels who are greater in, in might and power, but would not bring a railing judgment before the Lord. And, and in Jude, it talks about the, the um, um, Michael, the archangel said, uh, the Lord rebuke you. He yeah. didn't bring a judgment against Satan himself from his own authority. It was the Lord rebuke you. So here you have people just complete arrogance in uh, uh, their approach. Uh, they are above everything. Yeah, and they're above the authority of God and above the authority of the other apostles, it sounds like. And and because and in verse 13, suffering wrong is the higher wrongdoing. Men that count it the pleasure to revel. Uh, uh, that's not what I'm looking for. Oh, verse 15. Forsaking the right way, they went astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the higher of wrongdoing. So once again, we come back to a motive of, of greed. They, they're, they're in it for the money. You remember Balaam. Balak, the king, wanted to hire Balaam to curse the Israelites, and God wouldn't let Balaam curse the Israelites. But Balaam did everything. He really, he really um, tried as hard as he could to go along with Balak 
because Balak was promising great reward. And we find out, eventually we find out, that even though he was not able to curse Israel, he did counsel the Moabites how to undermine Israel. He said, uh, get at them with your daughters, send your daughters to them, uh, entice them into sexual sin and lead them into idolatry, and they'll bring a curse on themselves. And uh, why did he do it? Well, he, he was offered a lot of money. So you get back to greed as a motive here. I even think about Diotrephes in, in Third John, which I understand it's, he might not be the same false teacher label that we're talking about in Second Peter. But speaking of Diotrephes, John says he loves to be first among them and does not accept what we say. That sums it up real well. It's all about himself, and he doesn't listen to the authorities of other the authority that the others. Everything have. we're going to say that that self centeredness is is going to be at the heart of whether we're talking about greed, whether we're talking about being seen of men, whether we're talking about loving to latch on to some new unique doctrine. It's going to be about self centeredness when you get right down to it. Amen. So, could I can I ask a, a question in this in the text here, looking at like the full section? In verse 1, the New King James says, uh, about halfway through that, even denying the Lord who bought them, mm-hmm. these are not people who are, um, you know, just anti-religion or something like I mean, he says that the Lord bought them. They have belonged to the Lord, but they are abandoning him. They're denying the Lord. Is that the that conclusion? I think that's a fair. I think that's a fair conclusion. That's what he says. Denying the the, the in in this translation, uh, denying even the master that bought them. Yeah, uh, I think. And, oh, go ahead, Joe. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, uh, compare that with verse thirteen. What he calls them about halfway through verse thirteen, they are spots and blemishes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's exactly what the opposite of what the Lord is in First Peter one and verse nineteen. Without spot and without blemish. Uh, it just you know they have they have become exactly the opposite of the Lord or the Master who who purchased them. Just such a, a sad situation. But their arrogance and their desire for adultery he goes on and talks about in the next verse uh, is driven oh, into this. And point. perhaps at this moment, this is a great time to tie this into what the Lord said about false prophets who will come in in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Yep. They look like a sheep. They yep. kind of smell like a sheep. Right. But inwardly, they're these 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 ravenous wolves that are going to come in and just wreak havoc. And so Jesus gets into it and says, you know, that a good tree bears good fruit, bad tree bears bad fruit. You're going to know a tree by its fruit. Uh, and if you spot a tree that has bad fruit, what does Jesus say to do with it? Was cut it said? down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're supposed to cut it down. And so Jesus is very clear that you're going to know these false prophets by their fruits. And I think Peter is picking up on some of that same language yeah. Christ used. And yeah. he's saying, here's the fruit that you need to be looking for to spot mm-hmm. them. And if there's, any, if there's any doubt about how important this kind of a study is, uh, you know, I think a lot of people say, well, I would never be fooled by that. Mm-hmm. The text is abundantly clear the majority of the people are. He says in verse 2, many will follow their destructive ways. And then you think about the, uh, uh, the the comparisons in Noah's day, you know, all but eight souls. In Lot's day, all of Sodom and Gomorrah, except for Lot's family, 
Um, you know, it, it, he's showing, no, there are, unfortunately, majority of the people are going to follow this kind of uh, ear itching teaching. You know, and as we talk about this now, let's, let's make a, a, an application here that we can um, use ourselves. We look at the motive here, the motive of greed, and, and we who teach God's word need to think about this. You know, Paul can say he was innocent of the blood of all men because he withheld nothing. He taught the whole counsel of God in Acts chapter 20, and it's about verse 26, 27 there. Um, and it's, it's easy for a man who's a teacher of God's word to uh, tailor his message to what is acceptable to his hearers rather than to say what needs to be said. Uh, because if he's dependent upon them for his income, he doesn't want to lose that. Well, that can put him in the danger of being motivated by greed rather than being motivated by a desire to, to do God's bidding. So there's a warning there for all of us. All right. All right. So uh, let's, let's now look at another motive. And it, it again gets back to this self-centeredness, but this time it may not necessarily be financial remuneration, but it's just status. Uh, Matthew, the ninth chapter, um, Paul, uh, Jesus, in Matthew, the ninth chapter, uh, Jesus is talking about the Pharisees and how they loved to be, uh, loved to hear, well, let's just read it. Matthew, the, what I say, the ninth chapter, 23rd chapter. I don't know why, I'm, I know why I'm saying ninth. Um, Matthew, the 23rd chapter. Okay. Um, verse five is where I'll start. All their works they do to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries. What's a phylactery? Yeah, the garments, right? The, the edges of the garments. It's the little boxes they would wear on their foreheads or oh, their yeah. wrists with scripture in them. And uh, the, the, some of these Pharisees had started making their boxes big boxes because they could then be conspicuous. Look how big a box of scripture I've got on my forehead. <laughs> kind of like blowing the trumpet, right? Yeah. You give to the poor. Yeah. You know, and, and, and so you're referring to Matthew six, where Jesus talks about how they would blow the trumpet before they gave alms. I saw something in the past week or so, some celebrity, I'd never heard of him, but apparently he's very famous was calling people out for taking selfies and videoing themselves when they would do a good deed for a homeless person or um, charitable organizations, charitable organizations, something like that. And, you know, I thought when I saw that, I thought, you know, how many times I've read this passage in Matthew six, where it talks about the Pharisees blowing the trumpet before they would give alms, give charity, give some charity to somebody and thought, and, and I talk about that passage and, try to make a vivid picture of it for the audience so people can understand and how, how humorous that is that somebody would do that. But rarely have I seen something in modern life that just seemed like that's the same thing, but that's the same thing. <laughs> we go on Facebook and we do a selfie of me, you know, helping some homeless person here. And, and that's the same thing. Well, here in Matthew 23, he's talking about, teachers, rabbis, Pharisees who were, who loved to be seen as teachers who have the same motivation. 
They do what they do to be seen of men. They enlarge the borders of their garments. That's what you were thinking of, Joe. They love the chief place at feasts, the chief seats in the synagogues. Verse 7, the salutations in the marketplaces and to be called of men, rabbi. You know, when you read this passage, then you go over to James chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, be not many of you teachers. And you kind of see what James is getting at here is that mentality that wants the status of being a teacher without understanding the responsibility that goes along with being a teacher. Are there men who end up preaching in pulpits because they like to be seen of men? They like to be up front. They like to be seen as the leader. They like to be the one everybody listens to. Takes one to know one, right? <laughs> well, I've known some, so what does that make me? No, I'm kidding. I'm teasing. But yes, Jeff, you're exactly right. Uh, it, I, I've, I've known guys like the that. Bus, didn't he? Go ahead, Chase. <laughs> uh, no, you're right. There, there are plenty of men like that. Um, and I, I think we're all tempted. I, I don't care who you are. I think pride tries to get the best of all of us in our service to God at different moments. And so, uh, but there are certainly men who that is their primary motivator to where they, they and, and a man them. like that, who's primarily motivated by that. I'll tell you what, in, in my, just in my observation, you can, you can take this with a grain of salt or take it for what it's worth. But in my observation, it's, it's men like that, especially men like that who fall prey to adulterous relationships with women in the congregations because these are men who have big egos and they are, they, that's part of what draws them to being in front of everybody. Uh, they, they have those big egos and those same big egos get stroked by sexual conquest and they are in positions of authority and a woman in a congregation who is having trouble at home or trouble in her own marriage. And she looks at him and, and his confidence and his stature and all of that may be, appealing to her and she's looking seeks help from him and next thing you know he sees her as another conquest and um so that's a dangerous thing chase let's get to the one that that really kind of prompted this this topic today you were and that's uh the motive oh sure yeah and i i don't know if it's you know false teacher with the capital f and the capital t uh, that we're talking about in second peter but I definitely think there are some men who start teaching error um, for the sake of just being different. Yep. I've had different colleagues or different friends, different brethren who have come to a passage that generally speaking, we've agreed on for centuries and it's not even us as in the church has approved or anything, but just generally speaking, we, we understand what this is talking about and they want to reopen it for discussion. And sometimes it's really good to do that. We always need to come to scripture with a fresh set of eyes and, and that, and that kind of thing. But sometimes it's just that they're always landing on it differently. And it sometimes starts to feel like they're only taking that viewpoint because they want to be different from everybody else. And sometimes this is, is again, it's a matter of pride. It's self-centeredness. I want to look smart. I want to feel like uh, I want to make you think I know something that you don't know. Um, and so they latch on to, to some new thing. And I'll take that phrase from Acts 17 where the philosophers in Athens are described by Luke as people, uh, strangers sojourning there, spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Um, sometimes in the, in the world of Bible discussion and Bible study, 
it seems like they're just people who latch on to some new thing and they think, I'll tell you who does this. People who, who, who uh, describe themselves as Messianic Jews, oftentimes they are people who are very proud of themselves for knowing Hebrew terminology and they very pridefully will tell you that there are no J's in Hebrew and there are no J's in Greek and therefore you shouldn't say Jesus. And they know the real pronunciations of various names. Uh, it's always interesting to me. It seems like they still say Jerusalem and Jordan, but nonetheless, um, they're quick to point out how you don't know how to say the name correctly. They do. <laughs> Joe, <laughs> are you all right? Yeah, Joe keeps getting frozen. <laughs> I'll tell you another, another place I see this. In the uh, realized eschatology, um, 70 AD movement, people who say there is no future resurrection, there is no coming of the Lord in the future, that kind of thing. It all happened in the destruction of Jerusalem. It seems to me that in some instances, these are bright people who have noticed that there are some passages that have been taken out of context and made to apply specifically to heaven when, in fact, in context, they don't necessarily refer specifically to heaven. And they have, rather than go, hmm, okay, I now understand that passage better, they've decided now to champion the doctrine that says there are no passages that are going to talk about a future resurrection from the dead and the coming of Jesus and, and so on. And, um, and I know something nobody else knows. Um, and so you see that kind of that similar attitude you were describing uh, a moment ago, Chase. And I think it's just really important, no matter what the passages we're analyzing, you know, we, we let it interpret itself. As we say, we, we don't come to it with any preconceived ideas and so forth and so on. But there is an overcorrection to where we're like, well, I just want to take this viewpoint because it's different from everybody else. And again, that's focused on yourself. That's focused on what you want to accomplish. It's not focused on what the scriptures are trying to accomplish in that section. And mm -hmm. so it's just a selfish way to think. And mm -hmm. I, I see it. I see it amongst brethren. I see it in the world. And uh, we need to be careful about that. Who were some people in New Testament times who were kind of like that? They loved to think that they knew something that nobody else knew. Gnostics, right? Gnostics. Uh, what's the word Gnostic mean? It means to know. It's a knower, yeah. And, and we see this word over in 1 Timothy, the sixth chapter, and uh, verse 20. And, and, and really, if, once you study 1 Timothy, you'll see that the whole letter is largely uh, about, it's a response to Gnostic doctrine and helping Timothy understand what he needs to do to guard against it. But then we get to the conclusion in 1 Timothy 6.20, O Timothy, guard that which is committed unto you, turning away from the profane babblings and oppositions of the knowledge which is falsely so-called. So there was something called knowledge, but it wasn't really knowledge. It was falsely called knowledge. Well, Gnosticism comes along, and, and it is something where people claim to have a special knowledge apart from the Scriptures, a special knowledge of angelic genealogies and all that kind of thing. You go back to 1 Timothy chapter uh, 1 and verse 4, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questionings rather than a dispensation of God which is in faith. Um, and as a matter of fact, Chase, 
uh, I forgot how you said it a moment ago, but verse five ties in the end of the charge of the goat. Well, let's get, we need to go back to verse three. Verse three, as I exhorted you to tarry at Ephesus when I was going into Macedonia, that you might charge certain men not to teach a different doctrine. So the charge that is being talked about is what Timothy was supposed to charge these certain men. And then verse five, the end of the charge, in other words, the purpose, the goal of the charge is love out of a pure heart and a good conscience and faith unfeigned because these people had a feigned faith and defiled consciences and an impure heart. Their motives were bad. And, uh, but what it came down to in, to some degree was they just loved the idea that they knew something or they could claim to know something that not everybody else knew. Oh, we have the special knowledge that you don't have. So, so powerful in that letter from, from Paul, as you stated there, he begins by emphasizing that charge against this uh, idea of, of their knowledge and so forth. And then you mentioned chapter six and verse 20, but going back a little bit earlier, chapter six and uh, verse three if anyone teaches otherwise, is not consent to wholesome words. That's kind of like what you were talking about earlier there in chapter one. And then in verse four, he is proud, knows nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so somebody who claims to know everything, Paul says he doesn't know anything. Right. Uh, he, you know, just he is so full of himself. There's no room for anything else. Right. And again, the greed, the motive of greed gets mixed in here in uh, the very passage you're looking at, verse 5 of 1 Timothy 6, uh, suppose, the very end of the verse, supposing that godliness is a way of gain. These are people who are motivated by, uh, the, by the material gain, the prospect of material gain. You know, this idea of, of prideful knowledge, um, over in 1 John, in First John, you have John addressing believers, saints, who have apparently been afflicted by such teachers who claim they had a special knowledge. And so uh, in First uh, John chapter 2 and verse um, 3, John's going to say, Hereby we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that says... I know him and keeps not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him verily has the love of God been perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him. He that says he abides in him himself also to walk, even as he walked. So you clearly get the idea. There were people who were saying, I know God, but they were not walking in the ways of God. So we go back to verse five of chapter one. This is first John one five, and he talks about the fact that God is light. There's no darkness in him. And so he says in verse six, if we say that we have fellowship with him, with God and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Um, verse eight, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Uh, so you, again, you see, okay, these are people who are claiming to know God and claiming to have fellowship with God and claiming that they themselves have no sin while in fact they are walking in darkness and practicing sin. What? So just, no, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I just say, uh, I'm going to set Chase up for this one. Uh, Looking at all these different passages that we've looked at, I mean, think about all the books that we've touched on so far. 
um, you would almost think that this is in practically every book in the New Testament. <laughs> oh, wow. If only <laughs> have actually just recently dug into that. Uh, yeah, so I actually, I personally believe that every single book of the New Testament deals with false prophets. It deals with false teaching in Second Peter or just teaching of error in general in every single book of the New Testament. And I just, I just looked at one of the Gospels. But uh, from Matthew all the way to Revelation, and it's quite impressive. Uh, the the mo- the motivations of teaching error is something that the the whole New Testament warns against. Yeah, and not just the New Testament. I mean, the Old Testament deals with the same thing. And I mean, even from a fundamental level, when you think about what false teaching or, or, or t- error is, uh, using Jeff's vernacular, think about back even in the Garden in Genesis three. Eve is being tempted by the devil. And what is the devil doing? He is changing the words of God. He he is altering what the truth is to convince Eve to do what is wrong. And uh, from the very beginning, we see that that people are going to try and alter and change what God's word says, and it will be to others' demise in doing so ever since the very beginning. And so we're still dealing with that today. And the early apostles were dealing with it then. And uh, we got to be on our guard. And that's why in Acts 20, this is such an important point to see. Hopefully there are elders in a local church listening to this podcast. Because in Acts 20, Paul puts the responsibility to keep false teachers or false pro- uh, prophets or, or, or those who teach error. He puts the responsibility to keep those guys out squarely on the shoulders of elders. In his farewell in Acts 20, He'll say in verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will rise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. This has been a problem across all the centuries of the entire world. Uh, and we need to be sure that we're on guard against this, that we're alert, that there are going to be men who do these things to, to puff up their own egos and to satisfy their own arrogant hearts. Um, and we need, we need to be on guard against it. So yeah, Joe, you're right. It's, it's across the whole new Testament. It's across the whole Bible. Think, think about this scenario, this kind of person we've been describing who, who is, is motivated by his own ego. He's out to get what he wants, but he has the ability to tell people what they want to hear. And as he builds himself up, he is constantly acting like he knows things that you don't know. He's superior to you. If you have somebody come along in a congregation and he ha- he's charismatic and uh, he has this ego where he's willing to put himself up front and people just kind of flock to him and then he goes around telling people you don't anybody who disagrees with him he says you don't understand what i understand when you when you learn as much as i've learned then uh then come back to me but but you really just don't know enough can you see that that could start putting doubts of uncertainty even in the most faithful even in the sincerest people they start wondering is there something i'm missing is there something he knows that i don't know am i wrong here about something uh, jeff what what you're talking about is exactly what paul talks about in second timothy with hymenaeus and, and philetus 
uh, he talks about this, this worldly and empty chatter leading to ungodliness and spreading like cancer, spreading like gangrene. And among them were these two men, Hymenaeus and Philetus. And it says that they've gone away from the truth and uh, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they upset the faith of some. Yep. Yep. That's exactly what it had done. Whether they were strong Christians or weak Christians, it upset the faith of some people. And first John is written to, um, to correct that, to, to remind the people who are not caught up in this stuff. They don't need to be listen to it in verse 20 and 21 of first John two verse 20 and 21. You have an anointing from the Holy one and you know, all things. I've not written unto you because you don't know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. You've got these people coming along telling you that they know God and yet they're walking in darkness and you're wondering, what am, what am I missing? And John's saying, you're not missing anything. Verse 20, um, verse 27, uh, verse 26. These things have I written unto you concerning them that would lead you astray. And as for you, the anointing which you received of him abides in you, and you need not that anyone teach you. But as his anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is no lie, and even as it taught you, abide in him. He tells them that the, the thing they've known from the beginning is the truth. There's no new secret that, they, that has been withheld from them. So now think about this. Today in the religious world, where do we run into this mentality that uh, somebody will come along and they'll, they'll act like, well, I just I know things that you don't know and you can't understand because you don't have this something from God that I have. Where do we run into that? I'll tell you where we run into it. Sometimes it's people who think that they have a direct revelation from the Holy Spirit, people who really truly are false teachers. They're pretending, they're claiming, they may even be deceived and, and, and believe it, but they think that they have some special insight from God and they don't have to listen to what the pages of the Bible say because that's just head religion. But they've got a direct connection with God and you don't have that. That's what they'll tell you. And they will belittle your faith and you're trusting God, they'll say, that's just book religion. They've got something you don't have. That's where we'll see that same spirit. Well, all right, we're out of time, but hopefully that discussion of some of the kinds of motivations of some people in their Bible study and in their teaching will help us guard against being led astray by some of those kinds of influences. Thank you for listening today, and uh, thank you, Joe. Thank you, Chase. Bye.